Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. It's Today Explained. I'm Sean Ramos from on Thursday, Chinese diplomats met with Biden diplomats for the first time in Anchorage, Alaska. Kind of like a first date. It was meant to be cordial. It ended up combustible. Two superpowers locking horns with the cameras rolling. Well, I'll continue the relationship metaphor. It's like two exes meeting after a really bad breakup. Alex Ward, one of the hosts of Vox's Worldly podcast. So you really had, with the cameras whirring, you had the U.S. side, which was Secretary of State Tony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. And they started off with a, two minutes each, basically saying like, hey, China, you do some bad stuff. In Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, cyber attacks on the United States, economic coercion toward our allies. To which the Chinese went on a roughly 18 minute plus just lecture about what they did not like about American governance and foreign policy, such like, hey, you guys have racial issues. The challenges facing the U.S. in human rights are deep-seated. They did not emerge over the past four years. The slaughter of black people, the problem existed for a long time. You, you know, we're not the country going around the world starting wars and, and you know, that last decades. Hey, you guys have, you know, rampant economic inequality. And on top of that, your democracy isn't that great. You know, we're not going to listen to you. You know, we're not going to join this um, rules-based international order that America has been leading since World War II. We would like a new form of international politics. So to give you a sense of, like, how far apart they were, they can't even agree on, like, how the world should run, let alone their own disagreements between the two countries. And this is a problem when you're considering these are the two most important nations in the world, the two biggest economies. The largest by population, China, and the third largest by population, the United States. Two just huge players on the international stage. And if they can't even agree on how the world should run, in fact, that China may be trying to usher in a new global system, let's say. Well, that is huge. And we found out because this was all being recorded, not only audio, as everyone just heard, but video. Are these kinds of diplomatic meetings usually recorded and broadcast? So here's where I think there was a miscalculation on both sides. 
So usually when you have these diplomatic meetings, there can be what's called the camera spray. Like at the beginning, right? Or the opening remarks where they both say pro forma things like, you know, we look forward to tense but constructive conversations. And then the cameras are ushered out of the room and then the real talks begin. Where the miscalculation, at least some experts I talked to, you know, where happened is the U.S., again, used that camera opportunity to kind of go forth and and get over its skis and say, you know, pretty clearly what it didn't like about China. The Uyghur Muslim concentration camps. Our intent is to be direct about our concerns, direct about our priorities, with the goal of a more clear-eyed relationship between our countries moving forward. Thank you for being here. Giving the Chinese the opportunity to respond, and they did. (laughs) The Foreign Minister Wang Yi said you don't welcome guests with sanctions, a reference to the blacklisting of 24 Chinese and Hong Kong officials in the hours before the meeting. I mean, there was an agreement that each, you know, there were sort of a two-by-two meetings that each member would give two minutes, four total. Well, just one member of the Chinese delegation, the top Chinese foreign affairs official, went on for roughly 18 minutes. And so that's what led to the other tense moment, which was as the cameras were being ushered out of the room, you had Tony Blinken and Sullivan basically say, no, 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 no. Stay here. Stay in the room. Hold on one second, please. And Blinken gave a rejoinder in which he was like, look, we get it. There are problems with America. But what we've done throughout our history is to confront those challenges openly, publicly, transparently, not trying to ignore them, not trying to pretend they don't exist not trying to sweep them under a rug. And sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's ugly, but each and every time we've come out stronger, better, more united uh, as a country. And so this was like an open airing of grievances that you wouldn't normally see. This kind of conversation would normally happen behind the scenes, but there was this plan to, for whatever reason, to air this all out in public. Where does it go from there? Well, then the cameras are ushered out of the room uh, and they get down to talks. Now, senior administration officials told me and others that, look, these conversations behind the scenes were intense, but they were substantive and we got down to work and it was fine. And we talked about all these issues. The way the wording of this is like, you know, substantive, but tense and frank is is really diplomatic speak for like it got real, (laughs) right? Like it got real, real behind the scenes. And that's normal. When countries are so far apart on stuff like this, usually the conversations get really, really rancorous behind the scenes. It is possible. It was totally cordial and and professional, and I'm sure it was for, for most of it. But when you're talking about emotional issues, like when you have Tony Blinken saying openly that what the Chinese are doing towards the Uyghurs is genocide, um, I can't imagine that when that issue came up behind the scenes that it went pretty well. In fact, Blinken and Sullivan on Friday after the two days of meetings ended said, look, it's no surprise that uh, when we raised those issues, clearly and directly, uh, we got a defensive response. But we were also able to have uh, a very candid uh, conversation uh, over, um, over these many hours on, on an expansive agenda on Iran, on North Korea, on Afghanistan, on climate. Uh, our interests uh, intersect. So... It gives a sense of like where the U.S.-China relationship really is, where the Biden administration is going to confront and compete with China on those sort of human rights top-level issues, but where there's areas of mutual interest, they might actually find a way to work together. What's the big takeaway from this meeting? Was it sort of a disaster? Was it a miscalculation? Was it a mistake to put all these cameras in the room in Anchorage? Or was it productive in the end? 
Well, I want to separate two things. We have roughly an hour of tape that we had at the beginning of these conversations. And then we have many more hours of private conversations that we're all not privy to. The private conversations, as far as we know, at least from the American side, as they say, they were tense, but they were substantive. They got down to work. They handled their stuff, right? The public one, that's not where diplomacy is done. That's theater. It always is theater. Usually it's pro forma, but in this case, I think there were audiences in mind. On the American side, we have Republicans who have been very critical of Biden, uh, even before he became president, but of basically being weak on China. Joe Biden's entire career has been a gift to the Chinese Communist Party and to the calamity of, of errors that they've made. They made so many errors. And it's been devastating for the American worker. So Biden's team is trying to go like, hey, Republicans, we're not soft on China. Look, we're lambasting them in public in our first sort of airing of grievances meeting. The Chinese, I feel, have an audience of one, which is President Xi Jinping. He is ushering in the more authoritarian system in China. He's trying to make China, if not the most powerful player on the world, at least number two, and really trying to dislodge the U.S. from the center of the global system. So, you know, she was certainly watching or, you know, got the readout and was like, good, my officials were really handing it to the Americans, like really giving it to them. So I feel like we need to keep that in mind. That is the theater and that is the reasoning behind all this. The one hopes that real diplomacy got done behind the scenes, but we should have no illusions. Like there are no real problems solved in Anchorage. It was just an opening meeting. Both sides are really clear about where they stand. And what we found is that they're just really far apart and there's anger about how far apart they are. The Biden administration is talking tough against China. Now the question will be, will they follow up the tough words with some tough deeds? What she said after a message from our sponsor. Support for Che Explained comes from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. If you like spy thrillers or indeed Elizabeth Moss, then you might want to check out FX's The Veil. It's an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. Oh, I'll go. One woman has a secret, same here, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. 
Alex, I think everyone in the world knows that the relationship between the United States and China is both deeply symbiotic and deeply problematic. What doesn't everyone know that they should know? Well, one expert of the U.S.-China relationship told me that this is the worst point that she's seen uh, in roughly two decades. And that's because this is not like a new Cold War, right? A lot of people are throwing that around. There's major differences between the U.S. and Soviet Union uh, and the U.S.-China relationship now. But this is a new era of superpower rivalry um, that we haven't seen. Ideologies of how future government should run, about uh, you know who's going to lead the global economy, about um, technological standards, which really matters, like what are the semiconductors that are going to be like in our smartphones and computers. Every expert really I talk to, while they may disagree about the extent to which the U.S. and China should compete, what they say is like, buckle up. This is going to be a long, long, long-term thing. Like the U.S.-China relationship will dominate the general U.S. foreign policy landscape for many years, possibly decades. And it's been dominant for decades already. How much of the history of our relationship with China is important to sort of rehash here? I really do think it's important to understand that we're in a completely different environment. Like we're in the precipice of a completely new U.S.-China relationship. Really since the Nixon era, when there was the opening to China, the vast bipartisan strategy towards Beijing was, you know, we're going to engage with China. As we look to the future, we must recognize that the government of the People's Republic of China and the government of the United States have had great differences. We will have differences in the future. But what we must do is to find a way to see that we can have differences without being enemies in war. By adding China to the WTO, we strengthen the organization by further integrating China's 1.2 billion people and $1 trillion economy into the world market network. This step represents great progress for China, the WTO, and the world trading system. Even though um, there was always a worry about China's rise, like are they going to try to overtake America, there was still this hope that by you know doing trade deals, by offering economic incentives, by having American companies do business in China, right? Having Chinese people like make stuff, we've all seen made in China, and then sell to the American economy, um, that that would interlink the two countries, and things would be better over time. Now, generally speaking, that was the bipartisan plan, all really from Nixon to Obama. And that sounds incredible, but. Overall, that was actually like everyone sort of followed that general framework. Did this change under President Obama? It did, sort of. Because in the first half of the Obama years, there was hope for engagement, like the Paris Climate Accord and um, you know, working on climate change, working on cyber standards, Afghanistan, really a myriad bunch of issues where Obama's theory was, look, I'm going to kick this engagement into overdrive. In fact, Xi Jinping, then China's vice president, came to America to hang out with then-Vice President Joe Biden. Good morning. So how popular have the L.A. Clippers become? The vice president of China will visit Los Angeles later this week and ask for tickets to a Clippers game. Unfortunately, the team isn't in town, so he's got to settle for a Lakers game. Oh, how times have changed. Well, the United States and China, as you have pointed out, Mr. Vice President, will not always see eye to eye. It is. It is a sign of the strength and maturity of our relationship 
that we can uh, be candid about our differences as we have been. That change in the latter half of the Obama administration because um, there was, you know, China hacking the Office of Personnel Management. They were still, um, you know, not allowing American companies to fairly compete in the Chinese market. There was still a dispute today about like, hey, MasterCard and Visa can't really do any business in China, which of course you'd want as as a very populous nation. Um, and so a lot of experts said like, look, this engagement strategy failed. Obama's administration, while it did some good stuff with China, ultimately failed to change Chinese behavior and really help out America in in terms of economic and security standards. And then President Obama's successor shows up. And it got worse. (laughs) When China doesn't want to fix the problem in North Korea, we say, sorry, folks, you got to fix the problem. Because we can't continue to allow China to rape our country. And that's what they're doing. It's the greatest theft in the history of the world. We will distribute a vaccine. We will defeat the virus. We will end the pandemic. And we will enter a new era of unprecedented prosperity, cooperation, and peace. As we pursue this bright future, we must hold accountable the nation which unleashed this plague onto the world, China was part of sort of Trump's general view that, you know, a lot of what was going wrong in the United States, particularly the decline of manufacturing, the decline of certain economic sectors was because of China's rise. And so he tried to correct that with a trade war that got, you know, billions of dollars, extremely rancorous. And there was also just the general, you know, uh, antagonism towards China. And that ended, that ended the era of engagement. In fact, Um, then-Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, speaking at the Nixon Presidential Library, said this. Look, we we have to admit a hard truth. We we must admit a hard truth that should guide us in the years and decades to come, that if we want to have a free 21st century and not the Chinese century of which Xi Jinping dreams, the old paradigm of blind engagement with China simply won't get it done. We must not continue it, and we must not return to it. President Obama's successor loved to boast about how tough he was on China. And I think to be fair to him, he seemed to be pretty tough on China, at least when it came to trade. He didn't seem particularly tough when it came to, say, the Uyghurs. Did he accomplish anything with all that toughness? A little bit. I mean, he did, through the Uyghur Human Rights Act, which he did sign, um, reluctantly, let's be real, but he signed it. Um, it put, you know, China on notice and has made it possible for and easier for any administration to sanction Chinese officials using that act. In fact, it happened on Monday, uh, today, um, where the Biden administration used that act signed by Trump to sanction two top Chinese officials for the treatment of the Uyghurs. Um, but what I think, if we're looking for his sort of big accomplishment, did China change its policies? No, I think it was pretty feckless what he did overall, in part because he tried to do it all unilaterally. But his big success, and one that will be long-lasting, is that he sort of changed the narrative in D.C. about what the U.S.-China relationship should be. It is now a bipartisan given that America should be tough on China. It is not just a Trump point. It is not just a Republican point. Democrats buy it, too. And it has informed the, uh, the Biden administration as it was coming into office. So where does this leave President Biden? I mean, his administration's first meeting with Chinese diplomats didn't go completely as planned. But what is the broader ambition here? 
it's really twofold. Some would say threefold. But when you listen to Biden administration officials talk, they say, look, the Trump administration got sort of the general thrust right. We should compete with China. Like they give them credit for that. But the way they went about it was wrong. And Biden really has sort of two general critiques. The first is that, you know, you can't do it alone. You, the U.S. is powerful. There's no question. But if you're going to get China to change almost all, everything about its foreign, you know, domestic and foreign policies, you need partners and allies on board. This is sort of a multilateral push. In fact, one former Biden aide told me before the administration started that the goal was to create a democratic alliance to save the world. Part two is to revitalize and rejuvenate American society. This is the like foreign policy begins at home thing, right? That if you are going to say that democracy is good, then American democracy must be good. If you are going to say, hey, China, stop like hating other cultures, we have to support racial equality at home. So this is a competition. Let's be clear. This is a competition for the fight of the of the global system, of, of sort of global values um, that the U.S. is trying to lead with partners and allies and by changing its own society at home. How much of this conflict that has now landed at President Biden's doorstep is complicated by the fact that we're also dealing with this surge in violence against Asian Americans, this mass shooting in Georgia last week, elderly Asian people being attacked in the streets across the country, a sentiment that, you know, surely may have been fueled by President Obama's successor calling coronavirus things like the China flu. It's hard to know what the direct influence of Trump's rhetoric is, but it's hard to believe that it didn't have any influence. And it's hard to believe still um, like we won't know if Biden's combative stance towards China will lead to or fuel more anti-Asian hate in America, but it's possible that it will, because if the the constant, you know, refrain coming out of the U.S. is like it's the Chinese government, not Chinese people. But still, if it's constantly combative, it's about look what they're doing to Uyghurs, look what they're doing in Hong Kong, look what they're doing in Tibet, look at their aggressions around the world to our allies and partners. Then at least the conception is, oh, China, you know, China bad, Chinese people bad. And that, and, you know, mixed with a whole bunch of other factors, um, it could just fuel anti-Asian hate. And that's a problem for Biden because he does want to compete with China. In fact, most experts say the U.S. should compete with China, but he also wants to stop the rise of anti-Asian hate. But we also have to consider this, that a lot of China's actions are also hurting, you know, millions of Chinese people. So how do you call out China for, for its actions that are also hurting, you know, people in China, innocent people in China, without fueling... Um, hate here. It's hard. There, it's it's going to require deft messaging, and I'm sure that's what the Biden administration is is working on right now. And beyond that very difficult task, there's the other one, presumably, which is preventing escalation. Yeah, I mean, let, let's be clear. Again, most experts say the competition, the confrontation is good, but we should remember that it's a theory, right? The theory is engagement didn't work. This new plan might work, but if it doesn't, then we have some really uncomfortable conversations to have in the United States. What are we willing to defend? What are we willing to possibly use military force to, to signal and defend? Um, if China were to invade Taiwan, do we, do we defend it? You know, it is, a, it is a country we have great relations with. Um, do we enlist Japan and Korea or other nations? Does this become a bigger thing? That's probably the highest end of our worries, right? We're far away from that, like, you know, worst case scenarios. But these, are, these do have to be in the back of our mind as we consider China's military is pretty strong. Um, it does have nuclear weapons, not many, but it does. It could get worse. Um, and most experts say that's probably going to get worse before it gets better. And that's what we, I think we saw in Alaska, which was 
maybe someday down in the future, down the line, there will be a diplomatic meeting that we won't have that bombast and that blow up. But the symbolism of that meeting is it's bad. It's really bad. And it's probably going to continue to be bad. Um, and if we want it to get good, we really need to figure out how to handle China because we really haven't for 50 or so years. You can hear more from Alex Ward on the Worldly Podcast from Vox. You can find it anywhere in the world on your preferred podcast application.